A warm welcome to the program. Great to have you with us. TGIF, a truly TGI fast and furious week on First Move in many respects. T is for TikTok Rocked, the CEO of the popular app Socked during a bipartisan battering on Capitol Hill. His privacy promises were mocked and lawmakers made it clear they want it blocked. What's next for the app and its 150 million American users? That's coming up. G, in the meantime, for global banks, fresh worry in their ranks. It's Deutsche Bank now under the spotlight. The cost of buying insurance against a Deutsche Bank default jumped to four-year highs earlier today. Other European banks under pressure as well. We'll discuss. I, in the meantime, for insurance, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen clarifying that comment about possible broader backing for big depositors in the U.S. She's now promising to do more if necessary To me, it sounds like repetition. I'd argue her position didn't change then, and it hasn't changed now. A tempest in a Treasury teapot, perhaps? In the meantime, F is for Fed Fund's fate. Jay Powell warning that tighter credit conditions may limit lending and negate the need for more rate hikes. We heard this on Wednesday, too. An unprecedented degree of uncertainty for the U.S. central bank as it continues the inflation fight. TGI, F for fatigue maybe what stock market investors are feeling today. We have a sea of red, as you can see, across U.S. futures and across the European markets. They're the underperformers. Here's a look at some more banking blues. Deutsche Bank leading the declines, currently down, as you can see, just over 9%. Comets Bank falling around 8%. UBS under pressure too, along with some of the French banks. Amid all this, we're seeing a flight to safety globally into government bonds. U.S. benchmark 10-year Treasury yields now down at 3.31%, as you can see there. That's a seven-month low. The question is, what's driving this? Anna Stewart joins us now. Um, rather you answer this question than, uh, than me, Anna. Great to have you with us. Though I do notice, actually, the stock price there of Deutsche Bank is off the lows that we saw earlier on in the session. What do we think's going on? Well, I have to say it's pretty choppy because right now it's now down uh, minus 11.5%. So I think this is just going to be an incredibly volatile day. Listen, it was interesting. You mentioned the sharp rise in the cost of credit default swaps, insurance on its debt. Um, There's also, of course, expected, I think, 81 bonds um, have been lower across the board for European banks since Credit Suisse and the fallout and everything that happened there. Why Deutsche Bank? You know, this was a troubled bank. It was actually called the riskiest bank by the IMF in 2016, which I'm sure you'll remember. And I was trying to think back to all the stories we did then. You know, there was the rate fixing scandal with LIBOR. There was money laundering investigations, anti-bribery scandals, uh, greenwashing. It was unprofitable for a fair few years. But the difference between this bank and Credit Suisse is it did undergo a massive restructure and pretty successfully, and it is now profitable. It meets all the capital liquidity requirements you would expect of a large European bank. The only thing I can think right now, and this is really a guessing game, is that of all of the links, if we're looking at weak links in Europe, Credit Suisse was the weakest and it did buckle under the broader sentiment of banking sector. Perhaps this is just still conceived to be still perceived to be one of those weak links. And perhaps this is just buckling a little on a Friday. Yeah, it's um, all it takes when you have low levels of liquidity is for someone to put through a trade like that to buy some protection simply because they're looking, to your point, at what they perceive to be some of the weakest banks. And that thing moves. And then again, as we saw with some of the banks in the United States, speculation starts and then and you have a situation like today. Um, there's still a lot of nervousness around. Um, and speaking of sort of reports, what 
is the report now that's suggesting that the Department of Justice is looking at banks, including Credit Suisse and UBS, into possible behaviour around Russian oligarchs? This wasn't particularly welcome news on a Friday, particularly after the few weeks we've had on banking stocks. But yes, there is this report in uh, Bloomberg that suggests that the DOJ, the Department of Justice, is investigating staff at both UBS and Credit Suisse and whether or not they were involved in helping Russian oligarchs evade Western sanctions. Now, that's pretty much all we know at this stage. We have no comment from those banks, but both those stocks trading down, Credit Suisse down 7%. Uh, UBS have down around 5% at at this stage. So certainly not welcome news. Really hard to unpick, though, whether it's that report or whether it is just the whole sector under pressure once again, right before a weekend. As ever, Julia, I said this to you last week. Thank goodness. Markets closed for the weekend. But last weekend was very busy in terms of banking stories. Yeah, you may have just tempted fate. Anna, (laughs) I might not forgive you. Thank you so much for that. Happy weekend. Happy weekend. Now, as TikTok's future in the United States hangs in the balance, China now flat out denying that it asks Chinese companies to share foreign users' data. And it accuses the U.S. of failing to provide any evidence that the app is a threat to national security. Beijing says lawmakers wanting to ban it are part of a, quote, xenophobic witch hunt. Here's a taste of the accusations TikTok is facing. TikTok surveils us all. And the Chinese Communist Party is able to use this as a tool to manipulate America as a whole. Your platform should be banned. Lance Ulanoff is U.S. Editor-in-Chief at the technology publication Tech Radar. Lance, great to have you on the show. It didn't feel like a hearing to me. It felt like a verdict. And it wasn't a good one. Yeah. <laughs> we called it, instead of hearing, it was speechifying. I mean, they just, yeah. they just the lawmakers just kept sort of saying things at uh, the CEO, uh, Shochu, and they, they really didn't give him an opportunity to explain. But I did pick out some interesting things, like for the fact that he does report directly to ByteDance's CEO, which is important because he is in China. So there were like little bits and pieces of actually useful information. But I will say that one of the big takeaways I have here is that, you know, I think there's wild agreement that there's going to have to be some sort of regulation. I know they all like waved around banning it. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think regulation of some form could be expected. Yeah, I mean, what your point there is an important one. As you said, he reports to someone who sits in China is the CEO of a Chinese company. And even though he said, look, I've never been asked for data, even if I were asked for it, um, I-, I wouldn't provide it. The concern, right. the fear can't be ruled out. And I think that became very clear yesterday. Um, How quickly, to your final point, do you think Congress can act on this? Because there clearly is bipartisan agreement that that this is a threat, whether it's the data threat or the China threat. I mean, think that's what's really interesting. You have bipartisan bipartisan support, which you never have for anything in the U.S. <laughs> right now, and you have the support of the White House. The White House was demanding that they sell or they may, in fact, move forward with some sort of ban. So Something could happen rather quickly here, but I think that with 150 million Americans using it, that may not be the right approach. And it may not be the approach that they want to take because they realize the outcry that might happen because the characterization of the platform was kind of off during this whole hearing. It was just music, dancing, lip syncing. No, it's about a place where people actually are running businesses, making money, making connections. And it's for all different generations, not just the youngest generation.
Oh, I've got two questions now. I'm going to go to the second one first. Um, consumers are fickle. The internet generation yes. is supremely fickle. Sorry, but I have to yep. say it. Um, I do wonder whether it would be um, TikTok's dead, long live Reels or Snapchat or whatever else people decide to, to perform the same videos or have the same content on. Agree or disagree? A hundred percent. We've seen mm. it before. Things that are wildly popular. Remember Vine? And then suddenly they're gone and people aren't using them anymore. Uh, I will say that TikTok is in some ways extraordinary because of its multi cross-generational appeal and its algorithm, which is insanely good. Uh, but still, people have now discovered they need this outlet and they will march over to another platform, which by the way, you gotta imagine that Meta's sitting there going, oh, I love this hearing, I can't wait because they own Reels, they own Facebook, they'll be very happy to see TikTok go away. Yeah, I'm sure they were sitting watching this eating popcorn and celebrating, quite frankly, because I'm sure it was, um, yeah, it was good for them. Yeah, I know, exactly. Now, my first question, second now, how do you kill this? How do you switch it off? The, the, the practicalities of saying to 150 million people, like you've got this app on your phone or on your iPad, whatever it is, um, but now it doesn't work anymore. How does that practically right. work? It, may, it won't be immediate. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, they will, they'll stop getting updates. Uh, they may wind down uh, the servers because in a lot of the servers and the data is in the U.S. and they may sort of slowly say, and then you won't get anything new in your feed. But there is, of course, another version of TikTok and there are other versions available in other countries. And if you wanted to try VPNing, basically shielding where you're accessing the app from to get to a live version of TikTok, you could conceivably do that. It won't be easy. And I think because of the hurdles that if this actually happened, people would march over to something else. But again, I actually don't think that's what's going to happen here, at least not now, unless the relationship with China gets so much worse that basically they're like anything from China we don't want. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, what about a potential sale, Lance? It's sort of in a lot of the coverage that I've seen, it's almost written off. Yeah. Is that a possibility? And I guess the, the, the punchier question on that is who would buy it anyway? Well, it would be extremely expensive. Mm. Billions, certainly. It would be, you know, at least in the WhatsApp area. You know, I think WhatsApp was bought for $2 billion by Facebook back in the day. And uh, I think it's more than that. Uh, so the other thing is I don't think ByteDance wants to sell. It is a mm. point of pride. They've created a global sensation. And uh, it doesn't seem to be on the table. It's one of the reasons that the CEO showed up with that, that really so-called rich plan, Project Texas, where they're shifting everything, not just, you know, the data, which has already been living in the U.S., but they're going to really you know, make sure it's all in the cloud and get rid of any legacy data, set up a separate board, set up a separate company, you know, move people into like they're trying to firewall the whole thing. Right. Which, by the way, if you notice, the lawmakers are like, mm, not interested, not enough for us. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, if this were really about legitimate privacy concerns, then why haven't we got basic data privacy laws in the United States um, already? Project Clover, Project Texas. Hmm. That's, that's right. They, they, what have they done up to this point uh, yeah. to really address this? And suddenly TikTok is the shining example of the worst thing that can happen when, of course, it isn't. We've had issues with all social media platforms. There's something fundamental about these platforms and their availability and their broad reach that sometimes inspires the worst in people. But it also, and to be clear, it also can inspire the best in people. And the majority of activity on TikTok 
is actually pretty cool and fun, entertaining and interesting and maybe even inspiring. Oh, Lance, you've done a perfect tease now to a conversation I'm going to have later on in the show. So thank you twice for joining us on the show. <laughs> Great to chat to you. The US Editor-in-Chief at Tech Radar there. And later in the show, we'll hear from a small American startup that says its sales soared thanks to a positive review on TikTok. So that's coming up. Now, what to do about TikTok is a question that governments in numerous countries clearly are grappling with. Here's what Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told our Paula Newton. She spoke with him just as President Biden visited his neighbour to the north. In terms of what's going on with Chinese influence right now, TikTok has been a topic of discussion. Your government banned it on government devices. But I want to ask you, as a father, what are your concerns, given that for young people, uh, TikTok is incredibly popular? Well, I have uh, two teenagers. They're no longer on TikTok. Uh, they are. Uh, they they you know, are on all sorts of different social media platforms. And as a parent, all I can do is try and make sure uh, that they're smart and that they're trying to keep themselves safe and they're making the right kinds of choices around that. As a government, we need to make sure that we are uh, giving citizens the tools to keep themselves safe and uh, do what we can to ensure that we're not vulnerable to cyber attacks or, or foreign influence attacks or misinformation and disinformation that we're seeing increasingly as a threat to our democracy. The CEO, uh, in appearing, denies that there's any kind of Chinese uh, involvement. In terms of what you think, though, uh, as, you know, the prime minister and intelligence that you see, do you think that China can have its long arm of surveillance within our countries on an app like TikTok? I think there was a significant enough concern that we decided that it would be uh, the most responsible thing to do to ensure that government phones uh, cannot, government issued phones uh, do not uh, do not have TikTok. Uh, what that means for individuals, what that means for companies and corporate phones, what that means for other people, I think there's a lot of uh, reflections and a lot of conversations going on about that. Do you believe the Communist Party can use something like TikTok? Though, I think too? we've consistently seen that China uses whatever, whatever the, the Chinese government uses whatever tools it can to uh, get information get data uh, that is going to be advantageous to their aims around the world. And, uh, and we've also seen that Chinese-owned or Chinese-directed companies uh, are very much answerable to the Communist Party of China. Okay, let's move on. U.S. military officials say retaliatory strikes in eastern Syria are a, quote, proportionate response to a drone attack that killed a U.S. contractor. The Pentagon says six other Americans were injured in Thursday's attack by a drone of Iranian origin. This video posted on social media is said to show the aftermath of the U.S. airstrikes. There are unconfirmed reports of deaths of pro-Iranian fighters. Nick Robertson joins us now on this story. Nick, good to have you with us. And White House official John Kirby just spoke to our colleagues on CNN this morning and he criticised Iran's destabilising behaviour and he said the US will continue to defend itself in this way. Um, you can tell us what happened on, on either side here, but do you think this response draws a line under what's been recent violence, not just one event? Um, it's unlikely to draw a line under it, and it's not clear if it's actually going to trigger uh, further retaliation mm. from the Iranian side. You know, the U.S. said that its response was proportionate and intended not to draw um, an not to make an escalation out of the situation. But th the facts on the ground 
aren't clear yet, uh, and we don't know what the group involved themselves uh, are going to make of it and, and what they're going to decide to do about it, irrespective of how much control and how much dependency they have on the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is, which is what the United States is saying that they do. Um, those explosions we could see there look like they could be uh, sort of secondary detonations at an ammunition dump, and typically those have been the targets of previous retaliatory strikes. But I think one of the comments that uh, John Kirby made earlier, uh, and this gets to what you were saying just an hour ago, that these strikes came very quickly. He said, we're monitoring the situation very closely. And it does seem as if the United States has a, a, a packet of target lists, a packet of targets that it's ready to target at a moment's notice. We don't quite know the lead time between the, the initial strike and, and the U.S. response. But it does seem that there was an absolute readiness uh, President Biden signing off on it, of course, uh, to, 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 to respond in kind swiftly. And I think that just tells us how high the tensions are there already. Yeah, an immediate planned response. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you. Nick Robertson there. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move, the warning signs human medics can miss. How artificial intelligence gives women a better chance against cancer and... Allow me to whet your appetite. How a tasty review on TikTok transformed a chocolatier's business. That's all to come. Welcome back to First Move and the ongoing fight against breast cancer. The American Cancer Society notes that screening mammograms miss around one in eight breast cancers. Well, now one London-based startup is looking to change that using artificial intelligence. Founded in 2016, Chiron Medical Technologies is helping radiologists detect breast cancer earlier with its AI screening product called MIA. MIA, which stands for Mammography Intelligent Assistant, serves as a second pair of eyes in the room, allowing doctors to decide whether to call a patient back for further evaluation post-screening. Now, the company has teamed up with Microsoft's Azure Cloud to help radiologists on a global scale. And joining us now is Dr. Peter Kachikimeti. He is the co-founder and CEO of Chiron Medical Technologies. Um, great to have you on the show, Peter, if I may call you that. Just start by explaining how the technology works and me. what makes AI so powerful. Welcome. Uh, thanks a lot for, for, for covering this topic. Uh, it is, uh, I believe, uh, quite important. As, as you said earlier, uh, some say one in eight uh, um, women, or one in eight cancers potentially get missed in breast cancer mm. screening. Some say potentially one in five. And I would say, I uh, think about quarter million uh, women in the US this year uh, might have an invasive diagnosis and potentially 50,000 uh, are expected to, to die of breast cancer. So this is an extremely important topic. Uh, AI can help here. Uh, that's the that's the great news. Uh, many people don't know that actually uh, cancer detection is really hard. Um, uh, and uh, in in Europe, for instance, two doctors look at every single case. In the U.S., that uh, currently is one single doctor for for every single case. The AI, how it can help, is really by seeing completely different information inaccessible to the human eye and the human uh, visual cortex and, and, and generally how humans process information. It can be uh, con uh, consistent, 
Uh, it can be brought to rural areas where it would be uh, hard to bring uh, specialists. So there's quite a bit of uh, equity and quite a bit of uh, accuracy improvement uh, that AI can bring uh, f- to the US and, and across the globe. How do you train it um, and teach it to learn what to look for? So how many mammograms does it have to read before, to your point, and you can give me the stats on this, how it's sort of consistently perhaps picking up things that the human eye, whether it's one set of eyes or two set of eyes in certain cases, perhaps don't find. And, and I'm sure this is highly pressured for the, the doctors involved or the radiologists that are looking at these um, mammograms to, to try and decide what to do. Yeah, so a human doctor usually looks at a couple hundred uh, of cases a day, one mm-hmm. after the other, usually sitting in a dark room. Um, I've seen it firsthand because my mom's a radiologist and I spent uh, most of my childhood in uh, radiology departments uh, looking at the grueling work that uh, doctors had to go through. Uh, So a doctor sees a couple thousand cases uh, in in a year and they have to in order to keep their certification. Our AI can look at uh, and is getting trained on a couple million cases. Uh, So it sees much more variety and it sees much more um, information than a doctor can see in a lifetime. And actually what AI, modern AI is really good at is finding out what is the relevant information in the data, in the images, in the uh, follow-up uh, information from, from patient, historical patient records. And that is how the, how the AI trains. It looks mm-hmm. at what's in the images, what happens with the patient, it correlates those uh, usually in a not necessarily human understandable way, but that's actually the power. Uh, it can think very differently from humans. And what we can do with this is combine human understanding of the images with what the AI can get out of the images. You put the two together and that's how you can use all the information from the mammogram or potentially from other images for the best benefit of patients. Yeah, and actually, I, I'm sure sort of pick out fractional changes again that perhaps the human eye wouldn't over a period of time too. How difficult is it to generalize this technology, whether we're talking about um, variances in age, um, ethnicity, body shape, for example? Yeah, um, actually, uh, the term generalizability is the fundamental word, uh, word in the AI community for the AI actually working. Uh, AI is a completely different technology from everything we have seen before. If you have a piece of hardware, you know how it works. If you have a piece of software that we know that for certain inputs, it has certain outputs. For AI, it has to generalize from what it has seen during training to completely unseen uh, new patients, completely uh, unseen new uh, cases. That's the fundamental uh, uh, way that we are assessing AI. Does it work? The question is, does it generalize? So it has to work across different patients, different demographics, different ethnicities, different hardware. And that is the fundamentally hard thing, both to train it to work and to assess it to work. And um, how we know from our side is we tested it on uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, cases. Uh, and in Europe, we also tested it in, in real life uh, use where we have seen that the doctors using the AI were able to detect 13% more cancers uh, than, uh, uh, than without it. And uh, that practically tells us that we can believe it will most likely halve the number of cancers missed the screening. Wow. That's 
sort of based on what you've already seen or just what you're predicting? This is what we have seen in some uh, live use data. And okay. actually, some of our early tests show no false positives in that process uh, while, while helping detect more cancer. I know there was a debate about um, why you chose to sort of test and challenge this technology in Hungary, but now it's operating, I believe, all over the country. Where else is it in operation? And, and connected to that, to the point that you made earlier, what does your mother think of it? That's the acid test. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. So we actually, um, actually, my mom has been working with the company from the very beginning. Uh -huh. um, she, um, when I spent my childhood in radiology departments, uh, I've seen that it's not just the patients who are suffering in healthcare, but a lot of times the doctors as well. Yeah. And primarily that is because they don't have the best technology available for them to do uh, the best job. Um, they are more supported by uh, finding the uh, the right restaurant that they want to on their phone than actually helping the patient. So, uh, actually, I've done a number of startups now uh, helping doctors, uh, and uh, this one is helping radiologists directly. And we're working closely, um, eliminating exactly the type of grueling work and the menial labor that doctors have to do so that they can actually focus on the patient, they can focus their whole uh, mind and, and their whole thinking on the hard problems uh, at hand, uh, rather than, again, the, the, the menial tasks. Yeah, and your small smile when I mentioned your mother tells me that she's, um, she's proud of you too and excited. Um, what you just said there, though, has sent me off in a completely different direction. One of my very close girlfriends is a gastroenterologist and she works incredibly hard and she's always talking about this debate because she goes through what she finds with these patients with them on an emotional level, I think, but also works incredible hours and is very meticulous about what she what she's looking at and to ensure that she doesn't miss things. Do you think this could be applied to other cancers in other parts of the body, too? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and mm -hmm. I would say that I, I have a strong belief that we can only uh, beat cancer as a disease uh, if we get diagnostics right. And I'm very firmly believing that uh, can, uh, AI is the only way uh, to get there because of both the sheer amount of data that is required in order to process a single person's case and the variety of genetics, radiology and uh, pathology and so on. I believe AI is the unlock uh, to actually conquer uh, such a really complex and dynamic disease as cancer both at the screening stage as well as later down the line uh, when, uh, it, when the doctors have to determine uh, whether a treatment is working for a patient or not. Yeah, fascinating conversation. We'll keep up with you and uh, track your progress. Um, Dr. Peter Kachkamati, great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. And hi to your mom, co-founder and CEO of Chiron Medical Technologies. Thank you. All right, still to come on First Move. King Charles puts off a state visit to France as violent protests rock the nation. We're live in Paris after this. Welcome back to First Move, another day where banking uncertainties are weighing on global stock market sentiment. U.S. stocks, as you can see, opening lower by around half a percent so far. European shares also weaker too. Stocks of Deutsche Bank leading the European banking sector declines off 
session lows, but still down some 8%, as Anna was saying earlier. Volatile, though. The cost of buying insurance against a Deutsche Bank default jumping to four-year highs. It just escalates or at least highlights the level of uncertainty. And playing into the Deutsche Bank woes lies the broader fears of how the current financial uncertainties are affecting what we call credit markets and banks' ability and willingness to lend. Take a look at this chart from Torsten Slock of Apollo Global Management. This highlights the uncertainty and the concerns. It shows that U.S. capital markets have essentially been frozen since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank with issuance in what's known as both high yield and investment grade, so high quality debt drying up. In English, it just means raising money now is incredibly hard. And we're talking corporates and despite the liquidity um, provisioned by the central banks, probably for the banks too, particularly those smaller ones. Okay, where does an investor go, though, to ride out the stormy seas? In addition to global treasuries, gold has been a winning trade. The precious metal currently breaking through that $2,000 an ounce level. Apple, a winner too, currently near six-month highs, up 22% year to date. A state, you have to have a look at the... uh, Two-year performance, though, I think, to get perspective on that, too. (laughs) All right, a state visit to France next week by King Charles has been postponed as pension protests continue. Buckingham Palace says the king and queen consort will make the planned visit as soon as new dates can be found. French trade unions are planning to stage more protests across the nation on Tuesday next week against the government's controversial pension reforms. Sam Kiley joins us now from Paris. Sam, another night of violence yesterday. I don't think either the president nor the royals actually want the spotlight on them there at this moment. No, and uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, Julia, has just pretty much said as said just that uh, in uh, Brussels at a press conference following his meetings there. Uh, he said that it eff- effectively was common sense to uh, pose, ask the palace to postpone uh, the visit of King Charles and Queen Camilla to France, the first overseas visit since uh, the death of the king, since his accession to the throne. Uh, would have been to France, but that's no longer going to be the case because there would have been this very large or in anticipation of a very large series of demonstrations right bang in the middle of their trip. They were due to come on Sunday, leave on Wednesday for Germany. Uh, The demonstrations are scheduled for Tuesday. Yesterday, more than a million people took to the streets in France uh, amid uh, demonstrations that turned violent in uh, Bordeaux where King Charles was due to visit with Camilla. In fact, they burnt the doors and the front of the facade of the city hall, which was where they were due to be having lunch. So it would have been very much in their face, very embarrassing potentially for the Macron administration, possibly even for the French people to have this sort of performance going on when there's 10,000 tonnes of rubbish accumulated on the streets of the French capital as a result of the uh, strikes uh, in uh, protest against these pension reforms, Julia. So that has been put off into the summer. But we understand from Buckingham Palace that so far, at any rate, they will be continuing with their trip to Germany, which will be the first overseas trip by the new king, uh, as I say, Julia. Yeah, I was going to say, I think perhaps those images give me my answer, Sam. But is there any sign of perhaps softening on the part of the unions, the belief that, look, they they can't continue the scale of protests that we're talking about, particularly if it's another sizable one on on Tuesday next week, or despite what we heard from the president earlier this week saying, look, this is going to be done by the end of the year and enacted in terms of these pension reforms, any sign of softening? 
Well, I think you put your finger on a very subtle problem that I, spe I was speaking to uh, an official in the biggest union here just the other day, and he said the reason they're not calling for general strikes rather than widespread strikes and only partial strikes are being enacted so that 30 plus percent of uh, uh, the, the people working for Total, the French uh, oil company, for example, uh, were out on strike. That means that the, the rest were not. And the reason for that is that austerity, the, the credit, the crunch on people's uh, pockets is, of course, being felt most keenly among the least well-paid. And it's the least well-paid who, they argue, will be suffering the most as a result of these pension reforms. They don't get paid to go on strike. And so it's costly. It's also potentially embarrassing for the union if they were to call a general strike and they're not to be a, a fulsome response to it. So they're relying on these street protests, these set-piece demonstrations. There is anger on the streets. There is these spontaneous demonstrations, but they're not huge. Four, five, six thousand people maximum here in Paris over the last week in the spontaneous demonstrations. So the unions are hoping to can maintain this pressure. But ultimately, unless the Constitutional Council throws uh, the legislation out as unconstitutional and no, there's no signs that they will. This legislation is a done deal and Macron simply has to wait out this disruption. Uh, but his problem is that this disruption at the moment has got the broad support of the majority of the French. A lot of opinion polls showing 60 to 70 percent uh, support for these uh, demonstrations. How long that support will last will uh, depend on really how deep down they feel these uh, pension reforms are. But ultimately, as Macron is insisting, they are economically necessary. The pension deficit uh, by 2027 will be 12.5 billion euros. And he's saying that is unacceptable. It's un he's unwilling, he's, he's, not, he's reluctant to impose these new changes on the French pension system. But he says they've got to go through and in all probability, they simply will, Julia. Yeah, a presidential protesting pension pickle. The end. Sam Kiley, thank you so much for joining us there from Paris. Welcome back to First Move. Now, for all the criticism that we've seen of social media this week, one small American chocolatier says it's enjoying the sweet smell of success thanks to the power of TikTok. Coco Asante makes premium chocolates using ethically sourced ingredients from Ghana. It's run by Ella Livingston in Tennessee, and her decision to ask a TikTok food critic, Keith Lee, for a re review set in motion a revenue roller coaster. And here's why. I love when sweets are balanced. It's salty, it's nutty, that chocolate got the perfect snap on it. 9.5 out of 10. Again, that's crazy high. And I should point out that Keith there has over 11 million followers. Now, within an hour, Ella said her whole website had sold out and she had to switch to pre-orders to deal with the demand. And I'm pleased to say Ella joins us now. Ella, fantastic to have you with us. Um, just explain to me a little bit about the business already, because it's, it's sort of cocoa bean to bite, which I love already. But then the TikTok effect sort of took over. Absolutely. So Coco Asante, we pride ourselves on making handcrafted chocolates that are literally almost too pretty to eat. And of course, you know, the cacao beans are sourced from Ghana. Uh, what we aspire to do is to become bean to bar, meaning in the future, which actually we're trying to do this year, we plan to process the cacao beans ourselves 
and we want to source it from my family's farm back home in Ghana. Wow. So you actually source them from family farms, as in your family? That's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. Mm, that's the I mean, goal. So we're not there yet. No. How soon do you think you can achieve that? So it all depends on financing. So we're talking to a couple companies right now as we speak to see if we can get things in motion to get the equipment and get set up and get started. Yeah, I mean, all of this, I think, combines to that sort of moment, I think, and you would agree, where you were just going along with the business, trying to promote yourself, trying to sell your chocolate. Then you had that sort of wow moment of the nine and a half out of 10 review by Keith Lee on Twitter and everything exploded. I mean, I, I went to the website and I think we have to wait five to six weeks now. That's how much demand you're seeing. And it's been steady since. It has been. And it's, it's continued to blow my mind, the power of honestly, one man's social media platform and how he uses it to promote small businesses like mine who, you know, we have great products, we have great customer service. It's just, you know, we lack the marketing and the, you know, the funds for marketing. I mean, this was free advertising for you to your point about marketing. It was, it was, and we're so grateful. We have seen um, our social media platforms double in followers. The revenue that we've generated, honestly, from Saturday when he first, or Friday night in West Coast time when he first posted the video, today we pretty much generated almost as much as we did last year for the entire year in these last what six days so it's been absolutely amazing do you credit tiktok then with amplifying your voice in a way and giving you access to customers that simply wouldn't have seen you otherwise 100% i mean there's there's no doubt about it social media has been one of the primary ways that we've grown Coco Asante and TikTok was one of the few platforms that allowed us to really accelerate that growth. Did you watch any of the hearings yesterday where lawmakers were sounding pretty punchy in their concern about the, the dangers of TikTok, that China could perhaps take some of your data if they wanted to? Ella, are, are these big concerns to you or is the bigger concern without TikTok? things like this that helped you grow your business wouldn't happen? Honestly speaking, I think that the concern for me is more without TikTok, what would happen? There are over 5 million uh, business users, small business users who use TikTok to grow their platform. Um, and even more importantly, you know, I, as I was watching different clips through TikTok, of course, um, as I was watching different clips of what was happening at the hearing, I just found it so interesting that, you know, as a parent and as an educator, more importantly than my business growing through uh, TikTok, I found it interesting that Congress wanted to ban TikTok um, because of the effect that it would have on our children, but they still refused to do anything about, you know, school shootings. Oh, Ella, you raise so many important points and something that my audience should know too. I mean, you were doing this, the chocolate business, in addition to being a teacher, as you said, a, an educator here in the United States. And this, this has allowed you to focus on chocolate, which I understand is a passion too, as, as well as being a teacher. Um, so you think it's, it's a crazy idea to ban TikTok. What, what happens if they do, though? What, what will you think? And, and I guess what's your message to, to lawmakers and the government? You, you raise a very important point about tackling this and not other sensitive issues in this country like gun control. But, but what, what, what's your message to them before they do anything to ban TikTok? 
I would definitely say just to think long and hard about the implications of banning a platform like TikTok, not just for small business owners, but, you know, influencers who use that as a primary way of um, generating revenue, um, all the information, you know, I hear it over and over and over again. And I personally have learned more on the platform of TikTok um, than I have in, you know, when I think of my formal education, not college, but if I think of, you know, like high school. And so, yes, it's a platform where people can post and it is a little bit unregulated. But I think instead of banning, we should look more at regulation um, and also just, you know, look at, you know, what's happening here with our social media here uh, in the U.S. and with, you know, other technologies where they have access to our data. They have access to all of our information. Um, and instead of just focusing on TikTok, TikTok, let's look at it, you know, as a whole and what can we do to protect um, you know, the privacy of consumers. But I definitely think that it would do more harm than good. But as social media you know, uh, creators, we always know that a platform can be gone just like that. And so we are always prepared to pivot. And if it's not TikTok, it's gonna be another platform. Ha, huh. so you're not, you're not um, that loyal to TikTok, to your point. If TikTok eventually went away, you'd be like, next, we'll move on. I mean, we have to, right? Because yeah. I have to continue to grow the business. And right now, TikTok is the platform that's been amazing. And I love, love, love TikTok. Me and my husband both. Um, but if, you know, if it does get banned, you know, we're ready. We have to do what we have to do and we're ready. Okay, I have one more question. You raised such an important point about the fact that, and this is something that this TikTok CEO said yesterday, any social media company can access your information. So if this were really about privacy, do something about the other tech giants too. Um, and what it came down to was the fear of China and national security and accessing data of American citizens. Ella, does that worry you? Or is your view that actually you put information out there and anyone can have it? Do you worry about China? How much do you care about China accessing American data? I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I Always. think speaking from the perspective as a black American, um, I I don't worry as much of what China can do as I worry as what the US can do. Um, and if you look at our history and the way uh, minorities and marginalized groups have been treated, um, you can see that we have so much more to fear right here in the US than we do from what China can do. Ella, a smart response. Thank you so much um, for joining us. I appreciate your time. Ella Livingston there, the CEO of Coco Asante. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Welcome back. At Thursday's fiery TikTok hearing, several lawmakers questioned the CEO about its relationship with China's version of the app. It has different moderation policies and limits users. Lawmakers asked TikTok CEO why it seemed to do a better job of removing harmful content too. As Selena Wang reports. Pressure is building again in Washington to ban TikTok, all because it's owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance. In China, TikTok is banned. In fact, it never existed. Instead, there's a separate version of ByteDance's app in China called Douyin. Boasting more than 600 million daily active users, Douyin was already a viral sensation in China before TikTok launched overseas. So I've got TikTok pulled up on my U.S. phone and Douyin on this China phone. They've got very similar home pages and interfaces. The only reason why I can access TikTok here in Beijing is because this phone has got an overseas SIM card in it and a VPN to get around China's internet firewall. 
But Douyin has some more sophisticated features, especially in live streaming and e-commerce. And Douyin users under 14 can only use the app for 40 minutes a day and see kid-safe content. Plus, Douyin automatically puts on this heavy beauty filter when I open up this camera function. Media is heavily censored in China, so if I type in a topic sensitive to the Chinese government on Douyin, say like Tiananmen 1989, nothing pops up, and I get a text that says no search results available. Versus on TikTok, you'll see that a bunch of videos pop up about the massacre. One of Washington's concerns is that because of its Chinese ownership, Beijing could use its propaganda and censorship methods on TikTok too. The other fear is that TikTok could be forced to hand over data to the Chinese government. But security experts say the national security risks are hypothetical at best. Beijing says the U.S. government has been abusing state power to suppress other countries' companies. But the irony is that China has outright blocked countless foreign websites and apps, including Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Netflix, and more. On Douyin, Chinese state media has been sharing TikTok videos from angry Americans. Explain it to me, Joe. Why the sudden move to ban TikTok? Joe, if the Chinese want our data, they can just buy the data on the free market that we love so much. Joe Biden, I am 80 years old. I'm not a teenager. There are quite a few million people on TikTok who are not going to vote for you if you ban this app. Meanwhile, nationalistic influencers on Douyin are accusing the U.S. government of using national security as an excuse to crack down on TikTok because of America's fears of China. But it remains to be seen if TikTok can convince Washington that it poses no threat. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. And finally, on first move, one rebellious zebra in South Korea was ready for the weekend. Siro, the zebra, went rogue in Seoul on Thursday, giving zookeepers a royal runaround. The three-year-old male trotted down busy roads and back alleys for hours, even trying to elude his keepers via camouflage on a zebra crossing. That's genius. Firefighters herded the animal into an alley where he was subdued kindly with a muscle muscle relaxant. And you'll be pleased to know he calmed down and was safely returned to the zoo. I don't know. Throw him out in the wild. That's it for the show. Connect the world is up next. Have a great weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our tenth season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at four seven zero three nine six zero eight three two. And tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.